You know, um, Oliver is not the only one who works with World Relief here this morning. Um, We have a former pastor from Wheaton Bible Church who is now part of the leadership team of World Relief. And I want you to welcome back Jeff Walser. Jeff, stand up. When we were together last night, buddy, it was like you'd, we hadn't talked since yesterday or the day before or whatever. It was just great to be with you and to see what God is doing around the world through the ministry of World Relief. Two weeks ago, Rhonda and I uh, were vacationing with some of our kids and some of our grandkids. And one night in uh, the midst of that, I had a conversation with my daughter, Kyle. It was not quite four years ago that uh, Kyle was delivering her first baby. And even though the baby was fine, uh, things began to go bad for Kyle in delivery. She started to bleed. As a matter of fact, she lost 120% of her blood and came as close to death as medically possible. As a result, Kyle can't have any more children. So Kyle and her husband, wanting to have more children, decided that they would get involved in the foster care system in Southern California. And over the last couple of years, they've had eight different foster care babies, all with a view to adopting one or two. But for a variety of reasons in every single case, that hasn't worked out. So as Kyle and I were talking that night, the uh, frustration of the last several years again boiled to the surface and Kyle began to cry. And one of the things she said to me that night, I'll never forget, she said, you know what, Dad, is re- Dad you know what's really hard for me? She said, it's really hard for me to drive my minivan. Because every time I'm in my minivan, I see other mothers who have multiple children. And I can't have any more bio children and everything we've done here in California with foster care children with a view to adoption just hasn't worked out. And when I'm in my minivan, it is so hard. And she cried some more. And I've been thinking about that comment. And I wonder this morning, what's your minivan? What is it that reminds you that something in your life hasn't quite gone as you would have liked it to, or maybe you expected it to? Uh, Maybe it's when you look at a happily married couple and you're not married or you're married but your marriage isn't very healthy. Or maybe it's when you see perfectly behaved little children and you know what yours are like. (laughs) Or maybe it's a bedroom that you walk by that's empty. Or a loved one that you can't talk to anymore because he or she is gone. Maybe it's people that have no financial stress or no health issues, and it reminds you of yours. 
You see, the minivan isn't the problem. The problem is our pain. And each and every one of us experience pain, experience, have experienced loss, will experience loss, a disappointment, a frustration, and the minivan is a reminder of that. So today, as I did a couple weeks ago with my daughter Kyle, I want to help you find peace to experience the incredible Christian promise of peace, the peace of God available to all who believe even in the midst of life's darkest moments. So to get there, I want to go to the little New Testament book of Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 and would ask that you would turn with me, we'll put the words up on the screen to Philippians chapter 4. Now let's stand together, go ahead and stand as I read God's word And let's listen as God speaks to us through his word. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent, if anything worthy of praise, praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know, I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You may be seated. What a promise. The promise of peace that transcends understanding. Read that transcends your circumstances. Now borrowing from some really good stuff other people have done, today I wanna talk to you about three things. I wanna talk about the character of peace, the disciplines of peace, and the secret of peace. The character, the disciplines, and the secret. God wants you to experience peace. That's why he gave us his son. He wants you to live a life dominated by peace. So let's begin with this peace. What is the peace that is promised in verse seven? Well, let me say a couple of things about it. Speaking generally, peace here is inner calm. 
It's an inner sense of equilibrium. It's an inner sense of poise. It's a contentment. It's the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety in verse six, the Greek word behind our English word literally means to be in pieces. To be scattered, to be distracted. So one of the ways, what that means is one of the ways to think of peace is to think of it in terms of being single-minded. Now, if you know the gospel stories or some of the gospel stories, you may know uh, the story in Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha. Martha had invited Jesus and his disciples into her home, and she was preparing a meal, preparing to host them. And Martha, we are told, was distracted. She was in pieces. I've got to prepare this. I've got to see that this is done. I've got to time this. I've got to time that. Martha's sister, Mary, was also present. But Mary was different. Mary, we are told, was sitting at the feet of Jesus. So Martha is distracted. Martha is anxious. Mary is single-minded. Now, this doesn't mean you don't prepare meals. It doesn't mean you don't host. It doesn't mean you work hard. What it means, and in and through it all, and this is what Jesus commends in Mary, is we stay single-minded. We focus on Jesus. Now, in a major city like Chicago, we spend all sorts of money on peace. By the homes we buy by the vacations we take, the recreation we engage in, by the education we pursue, uh, by medicine we buy, by therapy, all sorts of uh, things, and none of those are wrong in and of themselves, but we do this because not necessarily consciously, but often unconsciously, what is driving us is peace, the longing for peace. We just had a peace demonstration in Chicago yesterday that shut down one of our major freeways. We all want peace. But what's so fascinating is that according to chapter one, as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, he's not at the beach, he's in prison. Facing torture. Facing death. Peace is not the absence of problems. Paul has peace. He hasn't spent a penny on it. Rather, it's the inner calm that comes from being single-minded. And we see Paul light this subject up. He embodies this peace. It's the peace he, it's the peace God wants you to experience. We go to verse 11 and and 12 and Paul says something remarkable later in this passage. He says he learned it. He learned, he learned to face hardship and experience peace at the same time. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, I'm just that kind of guy. I'm chill. I'm easygoing. I'm laid back. Paul says the inner calm is something he had to learn. 
And it's the same with you and me. I'll come back to this. Now that's one aspect of peace here. Another aspect of peace, and now I'm being more specific because according to verse seven, what we discover is peace is a sense of being protected. And boy, do I want you to understand this. Of being protected by God. Notice in verse seven, Paul uses the word guard. It's a military term. It's the idea of a company of soldiers surrounding your house, surrounding your family to protect you. So the promise of peace here, and it is a promise, is that the undefeatable, infinite, omnipotent God of the universe surrounds your house, surrounds your life. 24-7. And when you sense that protectiveness of God, that I am protected, that we are protected, then you know what happens? It produces peace. Now, Rhonda's sitting here. I've told this story before, and I should tell it all the time. This is one of the things that attracted me to my wife. We had both lost our spouses to cancer, bad, awful, aggressive uh, cancer. And we began to talk. And as I'll never forget, as we were talking, uh, one day Rhonda said to me, you know, for the last 18 months, it's like I've been living under a cloud since Tom died. It's been dark. It's been so hard. Uh, the, The pain... But then she went on to say, and to demonstrate by her life, that in and through it all, she experienced a sense of protection, of being cared for, being loved by God in the midst of an assignment she did not choose. The Bible has a name for that. And it's peace. What Paul is describing here is like a hurricane smashing against a coast. Waves smashing against rocks. And when the hurricane leaves and the storm is over and the waters calm down, the rocks are still there. They're fixed. They're stable. If you will, they're content. Peace is an inner calm. It's something God works in the lives of Christians as we grow to understand that he will never fail us, he will never abandon us, that he will always, always protect us. The company of soldiers are always around us. And by faith, That produces a single-mindedness. Now let's go on. Let's talk about these disciplines. Uh, What is it that God requires of us here in these verses to get to peace? What are the building blocks or the the disciplines that can move us down the road and move us down the road radically toward peace? Well, I'm going to suggest there are three. We pray, we think, and we walk in dependence of the Holy Spirit. 
So let's start with praying. Praying is verse six. What I want you to see here is prayer is commanded. It's not an option. But I want you to notice the relationship, the contextual relationship between verse and verse seven. Verse six and verse seven, I mean. In verse seven, we have the promise of peace. But notice that the way we get to peace is by obeying the command to pray that precedes the promise. You pray, you experience peace. That's a contextual thing here with these two verses. Now, when we come to verse 6, we tend to think Paul is talking about three aspects, kind of separate aspects of prayer. He uses the word prayer, which is a reference to worship, to praise. Then he uses the word petition to bring our request to God. And then he says thanksgiving. And if we looked at this that way, we would be mistaken. You see, anxiety is like carrying around a 100-pound backpack 24-7. Only in the backpack is an alarm clock, and the alarm clock is always going off. Alarm here, alarm there, alarm everywhere. And yet we all, all of us as Christians, pastor, world relief worker, missionary, we all struggle with anxiety. I certainly do. It only takes me about 10 seconds to get stuck on a terrible outcome, the possibility of a terrible outcome. And it usually hits me as I go to bed at night. Now, I'm married to a woman who takes about two and a half seconds to fall asleep. And honestly, I hate it. And it is so wrong. Because Rhonda's asleep, I look over, she has this very peaceful look on her face, and I'm stuck on a terrible outcome, and I'm like this. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. We all struggle with anxiety. We all, we all have trouble. And so what is Paul doing here? Paul is saying pray, but I gotta ask a question. And the question is this, why is it even though we as Christians who pray, and I certainly pray, still struggle with peace, find peace sometimes to be very elusive? And I wanna suggest to you part of the answer is we got verse six all wrong. These are not three separate types of prayer. Worship, petition, thanksgiving. Paul says with thanksgiving. In other words, from the moment you pray all the way through your prayers, you're thanking God, you're giving thanks to God. We live a life of thanksgiving. Now, why does that matter? Because you, don't, you and I don't wait until God grants our request to thank him. And you're thinking, duh, no, no, think about that. You and I don't wait until God gives us our request to thank him. We thank him ahead of time for whatever he may do. 
You know, God did not create this world to be full of violence and heartache and despair. God has a plan for your good and his glory. So let's say you were a follower of Jesus Christ and you were alive at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. As you studied that, as you watched what was happening, as a follower of Christ, you would think, you would say to the people around you, this is the worst thing that ever happened. Right? And you would be scared. Scared for your future. Scared for the future. But it wasn't the worst thing that ever happened. It was the best thing that ever happened. And that's a picture of how God works with us. Even the terrible things God uses for good. Paul says, and we know God works all things, all things together for good. So when we thank God as we pray, we thank him before he ever answers. Thank you, God, that you're going to do what is best. I have confidence in you. What we're doing is we're acknowledging that our God is good. All the time, amen. And that he is sovereign and he is in control. So the first is discipline as we pray. The second discipline, and I think I'm going to say some things you may have not have thought about relative to this passage. And I'm so excited. The second discipline is we think. This is verse 8. When Paul says whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Paul is referring to doctrine, to Christian beliefs. Paul is saying if you want peace, then think about doctrine. Now let me illustrate uh, uh, this point this way. You do a search on the internet on how to find peace, how, how to get to peace. And as you're doing this search, you will rarely, if ever, find a secular approach that says, well, the way you get to peace is by starting by asking yourself, what is the meaning of life? You will never find a secular approach that says, you know, begin with asking questions about the big questions of life. Why are you here? Is there a God? What's gone wrong? No, instead, the secular approaches universally go to techniques, thought control, relaxation methods. Because if God doesn't exist, there is no such thing as ultimate peace, and therefore we can't think our way to peace. There's no transcendent peace. So the modern world, hear me in this, the modern world invites us to experience peace by not thinking. And boy, that's a temptation all the time for all of us. But according to verse eight, Christianity is different. You only get to peace by thinking. Now, what is Christian doctrine? Well, there is a God who has created us, created all of us for fellowship with him. 
But the world is broken. The world is off center. So God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who voluntarily, willingly came and bore our brokenness as he was crucified on the cross. There he died for our sin. And the moment we believe, we find forgiveness. And God begins the work of redemption. And one day, Jesus is coming back to bring us to himself and to restore this planet to its original, eternal glory. Now, do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see the significance of this? If you are a Christian and you believe Christian doctrine and you're not experiencing peace, then one of the things it means is you're not thinking. You're not pressing the truth of God's word, the truth and the wonder of the gospel into your mind and into your heart. Now, I am, don't misunderstand because I know a lot of you have some acute issues with anxiety. That's a big deal for some of our friends and family members. So I want you to understand, I, I'm not talking about physiological, clinical, family of origin, uh, uh, the causes and uh, predispositions that make this experience of peace harder for many. I'm talking about peace and anxiety generally, as Paul does here. Now, let me illustrate my point. Let's say you deeply love Jesus, but in the past, you did some really, really bad things. And at times, you still struggle with guilt. There are days and weeks that you experience no peace because you are just riddled with guilt. And what the New Testament is saying to you is you need to think about the totality and comprehensiveness of Christ's forgiveness. If the infinite God, Jesus Christ, bore your sin, why do you need to bear an ounce of it? If Jesus took on all your guilt, why are you taking guilt upon yourself? Wasn't the death of Jesus Christ enough? You need to think. To drive the truth of the gospel into your heart, into your mind. You see, what I'm saying, others have pointed it out, uh, there is a difference between what's called stupid peace and smart peace. Stupid peace is ho, 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 to the bottle I go to heal my heart and drown my woe. It's boxing things out. Paul is saying, no, box things in. Uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think about these things. Think about the wonder of what Jesus Christ has, has done for you. Think about his love for you. 
You know, the word think at the end of verse eight is an interesting word. It means to drill down, to press, to go deep, to absorb, to take it in. So for example, it's you uh, not only seeing God as your father who walks alongside you and guides you, but God is your father who regularly, consistently scoops you up into his arms and kisses you and whispers to you. And if we see that the all-powerful God of the universe loves us like that, has gone to infinite lengths to rescue us from our sin, that he delights in us, that he will never let us go. And one day, he will glorify us, make us perfect, and remove everything that is bad in our lives. And we will begin to ask ourselves, why should I worry? Why should I worry about this? And you'll sleep better. Because you experience peace. Now let me pick up the pace. Let's go to this third discipline. And that is you walk. You pray, you think, and you walk. Only you walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. This is verse 13. Paul says, I can do all this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is saying peace isn't self-sufficiency. So you look ahead to your week, oh, you know, I got this under control, this is gonna be a good week. No, peace isn't self-sufficiency. Peace is Christ's sufficiency, it's Holy Spirit's sufficiency. A Christian contentment is believing that Jesus is enough. You and I are not equal to our trials, nor are we equal to our blessings. If we were, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, Amy Winehouse, Prince, would have lived much longer lives or still be alive today. The gospel means that Jesus died not only to forgive us, but to bring us into a union with him. So when Christ died, we died to sin. When Christ was raised in resurrection glory, we have been, the moment we believe, raised up in the resurrection power of Christ. The spirit of the living God indwells us. We are united to Christ. So we can think, you know, whatever God assigns me, whether I'm in deep need, or plenty, I can cope, I can thrive through him who gives me strength. Now let me conclude with this third aspect, the secret of peace. The question here is what is it that motivates these three disciplines? I mean, what motivates us to pray? What motivates us to think? What motivates us to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit? And I want to suggest to you the answer is found in the second half of verse 8. In the last five words, pure, lovely, Admirable, excellent, 
praiseworthy. You see, these are words of attraction. They're words that express emotions, feelings. These are the words lovers would use to describe one another. She's lovely. She's pure. He's excellent. He's praiseworthy. Now, Paul is saying something. And I want you to think about this. I want you to get this. I'll say it twice. Paul is saying never settle for an informed mind without an engaged heart. Christians, too many of us, settle for informed minds without engaged hearts. But you can't have an engaged heart without an informed mind. But if you merely have an informed mind and your heart isn't engaged, you're missing what Paul is saying in the second half of verse 8. And you say, well, yeah, I love my family. I love my friends. I love this. I love my summers. I, I, I love that. And I want to say to you, fine. But unless you see Jesus as supreme, You will not know sustaining peace, permanent peace. Your life will not be dominated by peace. It's when you and I see Jesus as lovely, pure, admirable, that we experience peace. So what is the secret to peace? The secret to peace is seeing Jesus as beautiful, not merely useful. That's Paul. What's Paul saying here? In the 1800s, there was a man by the name of Horatio Spadford who was a a fluent Chicago attorney, but he had made a lot of money because of all the property he had in downtown Chicago. But in the great fire of 1871, Spafford lost all his property and he was financially ruined. Two years before that, the Spafford's son died. Wanting to change, Spafford sent his wife and uh, his daughters on ahead to Europe. And as they were sailing across the Atlantic, their ship was hit. And all four of the Spafford daughters were drowned. The Spaffords had lost all five of their children. They were in financial ruin. There, There were a lot of other things going on. But in the midst of the drowning of his daughters, Spafford wrote a song we're going to sing now as we conclude. The song is, It Is Well With My Soul. And as we sing, I want you to look at these words and I want you to see a man who is thinking and pressing the truth of the gospel into his heart. A man who finds Jesus as beautiful so he can be at peace. And would you stand now and let's sing together. Thank you.
So that was true for the Apostle Paul. It was true for Horatio Spafford. Is it true for you? Do you know this peace that surpasses all understanding? Because for you, Jesus is infinitely beautiful. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Father, we praise you and worship you for your glory and your grace. Fill us. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. Our prayer team will be down in front. Have a great day.